So this morning, we're going to continue our series on assurance in Exodus. I am convinced that the book of Exodus is written for young faith to grow in assurance, assurance of their God and of their salvation. And that's why we're in Exodus this morning. We're going to try to um, finish up um, our kind of our study in Exodus on the topic of assurance. Now, real quick, I was listening to a podcast this last week. And no, it was not that podcast. Uh, I had two girls in my backseat yesterday listening to a podcast. It was a it was a, a podcast by Steve Lawson, One Passion Ministries. He was talking about heart assurance, and he gave a just a, a quick little like you know five point sermon right at the end of his sermon on why we don't have assurance. And I thought those points were helpful. And here were here were the ones that I could remember. Um, um, number one, why do you not have assurance in your life? There might be various reasons. One of them might be because you are a perfectionist. You are a perfectionist. Maybe it's just the way you think about everything. You like everything to be perfect and exact. And if something isn't perfect or exact, you you either, you know, don't ever do it or you get just terribly discouraged by it. You are a perfectionist. And that leads you to no assurance of salvation because you, you know yourself and you know that you are not perfect. And so if you're not perfect, you must not be saved. Right? You're a perfectionist. Or there's this reason why you might not have assurance of salvation in your life. You have a love for the world and the things in the world. It says in First John, which is a letter about assurance, that if you love the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you, and you don't have any assurance of your salvation if you're, if you're continually distracted and consumed by the things of this world, you won't have assurance of salvation. And probably this might look like um, the, the idea of you're, you're never thinking about assurance of salvation until you come to Sunday school or youth group at night, and then you're like, oh, I don't care about that all week. I've been caring about all sorts of other things all week. I haven't been thinking about that at all. That's why you don't have assurance of salvation. Well, here's another reason. Um, you have a guilty conscience. You, you know that you are guilty before God, and that is why you don't think you have salvation in God. Or here's another one that is connected to that, that previous one. You have unconfessed sin in your life. I like how Lawson described this. He said, unconfessed sin in your life is like having mud on your windshield. You can't see where you're going, and you'll probably end up in some sort of a collision, right? And, and that, that leads you to no assurance, right? When you have unconfessed sin in your life, you have a prayer life that's non-existent, because you can't pray to God and have unconfessed sin. You do not have a true, uh, a true religion about you of the heart, and that leads to no assurance in your life. And the sum of all this is sin. Its guilt and its desires are strong in you and in your heart, and you feel like nothing is stronger than those things. And then that's what you're, what you're looking at. That's what you're focusing on, and you do not have any assurance of salvation. Well, we want to talk about assurance, and we've been talking about assurance for a month or so now, and I kind of want to keep going through this. Um, assurance, I would say, comes from a long, prolonged, characteristic, enjoyed view of your Savior. 
It comes from continually looking to your Savior more than your sin or anything else in your life. It comes from loving Him and that love producing an, a, a natural obedience towards Him, right? True obedience comes from love. It doesn't come from duty. It comes from true love. Exodus, once again, I would say, is written for your assurance to see the great glories and goodness of your God and to be fueled with love for Him that results in in obedience to Him. And that's what Exodus is. How does it provide this? Well, turn over in Exodus to Exodus chapter 5. I always like when I'm, when I'm reading through books to kind of get uh, one passage, one verse that kind of breaks open the entire book. You know, maybe you're, you're, you're trying to break open a nut and you've got to find that right spot. You know, you're trying to crack open a tree. I like to split logs. And you want to find just that right spot to put the wedge that you, you, you send the, the, the big hammer down on. And if you hit it right in the right spot of the log, the log just breaks open of its own accord. And it is such a satisfying feeling. And when I read the Bible, I want to find the places in the Bible that cause the book to just pop open before me. How do I know what this book is about? I don't want to just bring my own ideas about what this book is about. I want to know what God wants me to know this book is about. I want to know how God wants me to see this book divided. I want to see this book pop open to me and break open in meaning. And we see this in Exodus 5. I think the book of Exodus is is answering a question. And, and Exodus is answering a question not that Moses is asking, not that Israel is even asking, but a question that Pharaoh is asking at the very beginning. And we're kind of like, you know, those younger siblings that are listening in to the correction of their older siblings. And we're actually learning a whole lot more from the correction of the older sibling by listening in to their correction. God wants to answer Pharaoh's question here for assurance for his people to have sweet assurance of him and of his salvation. This is Pharaoh's question. Moses comes to to Pharaoh and he he says, let my people go in verse one, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And look at what Pharaoh says in verse two. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? There's the, there's the driving question of the book of Exodus. Who is this God that demands that these people be let go? Who is this God that should command obedience? Who is this God that I should listen to? That, that I should see as more powerful than me? At this point, Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world, and the Israelites were slaves. And any God that claimed to be their God is a pretty puny God, because they're slaves. Who is this God that I should obey him. All of Exodus, I would argue, is proclaiming to us who this God is. And remember, I broke up Exodus into three parts. Remember, he is a God who, number one, redeems. We talked about that last week. He saves his people from Egypt. That's the first 18 chapters of Exodus. He is also a God who requires. That's the next few chapters, chapters 19 through 24. He is the God who makes requirements of his people whom he redeems. And then in Exodus 25 through 40 to the end of the book, he is the God who remains. He is the God who dwells among his people whom he has redeemed and who he requires. That is the book of Exodus popping open for you. And Exodus does all of this 
in a way that proclaims God to you and answers that question that Pharaoh is asking, who is this God? Exodus proclaims who this God is. This God is, first, more powerful, right? That's the message of the Exodus. This God is more powerful than these Egyptian gods. Secondly, this God is more holy. This God is more holy than anyone. This God is more holy than the people he even has redeemed, and they must be careful. They must be distinct and separated in the way they live. That's the next section in Exodus. And then simply, this God is goodness. This God is goodness. That's the end of the book of Exodus. Declaring the goodness of God in the contrast of who his people are. So that's, that's Exodus. Last week we talked about this God being the God who redeems. This God redeems. Remember what that word means. It means he owns something. He buys something back. He liberates something to be possessed by himself. That is what redemption means. That's what it means to be redeemed. If you are redeemed, like Israel, out of slavery, you are redeemed to be owned and to belong to God. That is how God always redeems people. He buys you from slavery into slavery. Not phrases for the Christianity that we like to think about, but the true Christianity according to the Bible. So that was what we talked about last week. He is a God who redeems. This week, let's go to uh, what he requires. Uh, Second thing we learned from Exodus is this is a God who requires. Once again, this is covering Exodus 19 through 24. Exodus 19 through 24. This is often seen as the rules and the regulations of God's covenant people. This is where the Ten Commandments are. This is where the statutes are that kind of explain those Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments well. They're in Exodus 20. But this whole section talks about the God who requires. And there's, there's two very big picture observations that I want to make about this massive piece of important Scripture. Number one... God, I want you to notice this in Exodus when you read it, and just hear, God does not redeem a people in order to let them go free in the wilderness. That was not his goal in the Exodus at all. Think about all of those stories of the Exodus you've heard as a child, right? What would happen if God just let them go free after redeeming them? They would go right back to Egypt, wouldn't they? They would be destroyed in the wilderness, wouldn't they? God doesn't just redeem his people that they may have freedoms in their life to do whatever they want and to not be, uh, not be under the domineering hand of a slave master. God redeems his people for a great and glorious purpose, that they may be with him, that they may serve him, that they may be his people, and he may be their God. And there is great security and joy in that. Here's a title. Here's my working title of the book of Exodus. You can call it Exodus. You could call it the Hebrew title for Exodus, which is actually, let's see here, what is it? Hebrews are really creative. Uh, you, you know the Hebrew title based on the first five words of any book. It is, these are the names of. That's the Hebrew title. Or you could go with the Greek title, which is Exodus, which basically means road out. Road out. A very good name for a book about what this book is about. Or you could take my title, my working title for the book of Exodus, and it's this. Saved to serve. That's Exodus, right? You are saved 
to serve. If you're not saved to serve, you're going to be enslaved to serve what you thought you were saved from. It is a glorious truth of the Christian life that we are delivered from sin, not to just be free, but to freely serve another, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that is the good news of the gospel, and that's the good news of the Exodus too, right? God doesn't just redeem his people to release them in the wilderness. Can you imagine how horrible that kind of salvation would be? Also, God doesn't, another observation here, God doesn't redeem them because they have somehow figured out how to be pleasing to Him. God doesn't redeem His people because they have somehow figured out how to save themselves from the Egyptians. I know this seems like a very obvious observation to make, but you ever notice that the, the law, the Ten Commandments, come after Egypt, the Exodus, the Red Sea? After God delivers his people, after he calls them by name, he chooses them out of complete free grace, he saves them, and then the laws come into their life. Often, we like to confuse these things, don't we, right? I do all these good things, and then that will please God enough into letting me become his people, or his person, right? That's not the way it works ever. That's never the way God works, right? God saves you apart from any work of your own or any grace in yourself, and calls you to be His and to obey Him and to love Him. Out of that salvation, though, but but, but Exodus 1 through 18 comes before Exodus 19 through 24, right? You are saved to serve, though. You are saved to serve. Matter of fact, turn over to Exodus 19. Exodus 19 gives you the purpose, the reason for which God has called out this people. And this will sound familiar to you, because it's also what God calls his people to do in 1 Peter as well. Uh, God says this to the people of Israel, right as they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, there's smoke coming out of the mountain. It talks about later on in uh, chapter 19 about how as the Lord's presence draws near, there is this horn that is blasting repeatedly, and there's this great smoke that is coming from the mountain. God's trying to let them know, here is my presence, and you should fear, you should be careful. But notice, in this context, how God speaks about himself and about the people of Israel. Chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. That's the purpose, right? I have redeemed you for myself, and I have called you to be my treasured people. So it's not the same kind of slavery that they were talking about in Egypt, but it is a form of slavery, but it is a blessed slavery. It is a treasured people, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests to represent God to the world. You are saved to serve in that way, for that purpose. By the way, this is why, this, this is the point when, I, when I'm reading the Bible where the Bible really connects for me, right? 
The Bible really comes together. Parts in the New Testament start to join and connect dots with parts in the Old Testament. Now, there's a different covenant. There, there's, there's lots of differences going on. The Mosaic Covenant is a temporary covenant, and the New Covenant is a much better covenant, but there are so many similarities in the way our God works. For example, keep your hand in Exodus and flip over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 talks about our delivery, uh, uh, deliverance from a, another kind of slavery, not a physical kind of slavery, but a spiritual kind. And this is the kind of slavery that all humanity is under. We're all under the reign and domain of sin. Romans six sixteen talking about the, the, the transfer that we've had from the, the realm of sin to the realm of Christ is very explicit about what that means. Romans six sixteen says this. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So essentially here he's saying, don't you know? Don't you know that your works show who you belong to? Your life demonstrates what realm you are in? Don't you know that? That's why, that's why you, you, you strive for good works. And notice it's not automatic if you're a believer. Verse 19 of chapter, of chapter 6. I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitation. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Notice there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a necessity to obey that, right? But, but what's the basis? I'm, I'm in a new realm. I'm in a new kingdom. I'm, I, I serve a new master. I'm no longer a slave to sin, but I'm a slave to righteousness now. And I want to demonstrate who I belong to based on what I do. That's, that's what, the way a Christian thinks, right? We, we, we are made to serve someone. And, and that's why it's so important. Obedience is so important. You must be made a slave or you will be shown to be a slave of sin, right? That's why God must require all these things of you. By the way, by way of illustration, did you know, and it's kind of like this, did you know that there are actually Korean soldiers um, in the Battle of D-Day on Normandy? Did, did you know that there were actually Korean forces present that day during one of perhaps the, the greatest allied efforts of, of invasion that the world has ever seen? Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Wow, Koreans? I knew it. I knew I liked those guys. Uh, they probably joined with the Allies, came all the way across the world to join into a global effort to stop Hitler and to destroy the Reich and, and all these kinds of things. But actually, that's not true. There were actually Korean soldiers, of all things, in German uniforms defending France from the invading Allied armies. How in the world... Did those soldiers get all the way over here? What were they doing over here fighting for the German high command? Well, it's very simple. In a way that is very complicated. You see, they were slaves. In 1938, they were uh, conscripted by the Japanese into the 
the Japanese army. And they started fighting on the Russian front, way over there on the eastern end of Russia. And in 1939, they were, get this, captured and reconscripted into the Russian army. And then they were shipped all the way over to Moscow, where then they were captured and reconscripted into the German army and sent to France. Aren't you glad that God's grace is stronger than that kind of slavery that loses you, right? You will become a slave of someone else, right? They they were conquered and they became a slave of someone else and then they became a slave of someone else and probably, historians speculate, they probably went back to Korea and probably fought in the Korean War of all things, right? (laughs) Sin will just keep dragging you around from one master to another until you are finally liberated and saved permanently by a more powerful, better master who will never lose you. And that's what it's talking about with sin, right? Sin wants to dominate you and drag you around. But in Christ, you are liberated and set free finally in a way that's secure. Finally secure. By the way, back to Exodus 19. What what does Israel learn quickly about their God? Well, and this is kind of what I've been building up to, and we'll try to see if we can make this all connect. They learn really quickly in Exodus 19 that they are an unholy people, Possessed and belonging to a holy God. He is a dangerous God. He, he warns them in verse 24 not to come too close to the mountain, lest they be consumed. God's holiness refers to the fact that God is totally good and cannot have or be close to evil or wickedness. He cannot sin, and sin cannot come into his presence. He is holy and separated from sin. And this is what his people quickly learn. It's great to be delivered. But wait a minute. This God is dangerous. This God is holy. This God is righteous. And we are not. And and basically you could say it like this. These rules are the necessary requirements of maintaining and enjoying a fellowship with God. These, These rules are for the peace And the life of these people. We talked about this from Deuteronomy 6 uh, last Thursday, right? These rules are for our good always. If you don't obey these rules, you're going to be dominated by enemies and many slave masters again. But if you are dominated by these rules, you will enjoy your life with God. What is the response to, to, to these rules? How should you receive rules in your life from God? You should look at it in kind of an Exodus 1 through 19 kind of way. When God gives me rules to obey, it is a privilege that I do not deserve. That is what obedience is in the Christian life. Obedience is the privilege of redemption. I don't have to serve these old masters anymore. I am free to obey God. And that is a wonderful thing. Because every other master will just ship me around until they're done with me. I am God's own people. He has redeemed me. He is better than all other gods, and I can have joy. 
And then look at the corner that these people are painted in. Last week we talked about how God is intentionally trying to paint us into a corner with his superior um, nature and quality and power. And look at this corner that he paints his people into. What are they going to say when he says, you are my people? Are they going to say, no? Do you want to go back to Egypt? No. But also he paints them in the corner worse than that. He also not only claims to be their redeemer, but also their creator. You see that in verse 5, right? I have created the earth right? What am I going to do? Where else should I go? This is a high privilege. Obedience is, once again, a privilege of redemption, a privilege of salvation. Those people who truly know their God see obedience this way. I want more obedience in my life. I don't want less. I want to find ways to enjoy and obey God more in my life, not less. I want to, I want to have a heart that is sanctified more in my life, not less. Because obedience is a privilege of being redeemed by God. He is a God who redeems, and He is a God who requires, but this requirement is for our good always. Our good always. And here, the last part of of Exodus, Exodus 25 all the way through 40, the, the final section in Exodus, we also see that He is a God who remains. He is a God who remains. Think about the logic here. He is a God who can redeem permanently because he is the best. He is a God who requires because he is holy. And here he is a God who remains, who dwells among his people because he is good. I'll have to explain that because it takes a whole lot of explanation to understand how his goodness is related to him remaining with you when you are not so good. So let's just talk about this really quick. Uh, These last 15 chapters of Exodus, Exodus 25 through 40, are, to be honest, at times a bit tedious to read. A little bit slow to read. And like the good Hebrew that they are, that means they have the most important part of the entire book of Exodus. This is actually the point of Exodus. The point of Exodus is not to necessarily show Pharaoh who's greater The point of Exodus is not to just redeem and free God's people. The point of Exodus is not just to show the rules and requirements that God's people have. The point of Exodus is to show how God can dwell among his people for their joy and their assurance. That's the point of Exodus, to show how God remains with his people. Just a brief outline here of Exodus 25 through 40. Exodus 25 through 31 has some tedious verses for you to read on instructions for how to build the tabernacle, the place where God will dwell. And it just goes into great detail. This is how the Ark of the Covenant is to look. This is how the Ark of the Covenant is to be built. This is how the table for bread is to be built. This is how the golden lampstand is to be built. Here's how the bronze altar should be built. Here's how the court of the tabernacle should be constructed. Here's the exact kind of oil that you should use. And notice he spends a long time in chapter 28 about what the priest wears. Very important in Exodus. And then the consecration of the priests in 29. And then, and only then, after the altar of incense and then the census tax and the bronze basin, only then 
is the covenant confirmed? And, and one of the craziest pictures in the Bible, I would say, the, one of the craziest Old Testament theophanies when we see God on the mountain eating with his people. And he is so holy, so bright, that the only description that we are given is of the floor under his feet. But God is eating with his people. This is the covenant relationship, fellowship meal that they are entering into. And this is how God is going to dwell among their people. That's actually in 24. And here we have all of this instruction about how the tabernacle should look and and who should build it and how they should build it. Tedious instruction, I would say, right? Here is the part in your your January Bible reading plan where you start to lose heart and faint. But don't worry, you'll make it through and you'll die in Leviticus. Don't worry, don't worry. And here, another thing. Okay, so that's that's 25 through 31. Follow me here. And then in the, the next part of the book, we've got 35 through 40, we see tedious instruction about how Israel constructs the uh, tabernacle and puts in all the pieces and anoints the priest. And then we see it conclude with God's presence in the cloud coming and dwelling inside the tabernacle to the point where nobody can stay in the tabernacle because of its intensity. That's the end of Exodus. To which you all respond... Blessed assurance, Exodus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I could read Exodus all day. All my problems are solved because I know how the temple is constructed and I know that it was constructed. (laughs) Thank you, David. I'm warm, I'm fed. I can go now and praise God. No. And if you know anything about the book of Exodus, you know exactly where I'm going with this. No, the end of Exodus has all of this detail, but then it has a crucial centerpiece of all of that. A crucial centerpiece of the puzzle, you could say, to explain how and why a God like this could dwell among a people like this. And it happens in the craziest way. What sits between? Turn over to Exodus 32. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to figure out something wrong is going on here, right? Verse 1, Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was delayed, remember he's up in the mountain getting instructions, tedious instructions about how the tabernacle will be built, the people of Israel just verses away from the glory of God being revealed in chapter 19, the people of Israel, just like they did right after the Red Sea, have what? We see this short sight and a foggy memory, a deceptive memory. Because, look, when the people of Israel saw that Moses was delayed, just delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Remember how bad that sin was, like right after the Red Sea? Grumbling about God's provision. Grumbling about Moses. Remember how, how just shocking that was to us? 
How could you go from the Red Sea singing God's praises to grumbling about God's provision here in the Red Sea? Don't you think if he did that big work at the Red Sea, he could handle your little stomach ache? I mean, that was a pretty egregious sin, right? This is worse. This is a hundred times worse. Moses is delayed for a few moments, and they're making gods to replace their god. Notice, uh, Aaron tries to soften it a little bit. He, he tries to say, okay, I'll make you some golden calves, and then we'll pretend like this is Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. But it seems as though the people at the very beginning just want gods. And why do they want new gods? They want gods that they can see and know that they're there. Why? So that those gods don't wander off. That's their problem. They want a God that they can see always before them. Why? Because their, their memories are short and their sight is foggy. Because their hearts are hard and their necks are, as it says, stiff-necked. And of course, in the story here, Exodus 32, God sees everything that's going on. He quotes their words exactly to Moses up on the mountain. And we see very important things about our God that lead us to assurance, believe it or not. We see, number one, that God's holiness is very serious. God's holiness is very serious. I promise to you this will relate to assurance. God's holiness is serious. Look at verse 8. The Lord says about them, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Notice this, their necks are stiff, that means they're slow to obey, slow to turn to God. They're, they're just constantly going their own way, and their necks are stiff about it. And what is this, what is this telling us? It shows us that stiff neck sin causes, provokes God's wrath like nothing else. We see God's holiness is serious. We also see God's redeemed people's sin is serious as well. This sin has the possibility of separating them, destroying them, wiping them out completely. He's going to cast them out as if he had never called them, verse 10 tells us. We see this, this sin is serious in that it, it causes this inability for God to dwell among his people. An inability for God to remain with his people. Why? It is very dangerous to be with a holy God. Look at chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." You can't be with God. God can't be among you when sin is in your life. 
it it blocks your relationship with God. So you could say, in a way, a guilty conscience is telling you there is a reason why you don't feel assurance. In some way, there's a reason why you don't feel assurance, because there is sin in your life. But here's where we, we see truths about God also in these chapters that build our assurance in salvation from God, right? Because not only have we seen that God's holiness is serious, His people's sin is serious, uh, God's dwelling among His people cannot be among sinners, but we also see here in these chapters that God has positioned Himself right here, intentionally, to display something about his character and his plan of salvation. He has intentionally positioned himself to display something that he has not shown his people yet in saving them out of Egypt, but something that he intends to show them. And what is he going to display? He wants to display his goodness to them. It's a shocking surprise. Number one, God doesn't wipe out his people right away. You see that in Exodus 32, 14, the Lord relented because of Moses' pleading with him from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on the people. He doesn't wipe them out right away. It's also a shocking surprise that God doesn't consume them immediately as we saw in 33.3. And it's a shocking surprise, seemingly out of nowhere, where God says, but I will go up with you anyway. He just said, I can't go up with you. I'm going to consume you in my wrath, so you need to go up without me. But then Moses continues to plead and intercede before the Lord's face. And the Lord says, I will go up. Look at verse 14. Seemingly no explanation except the fact that Moses is praying. Chapter 33, verse 14. My presence will go up with you, and I will give you rest. This is a shocking surprise of God's goodness even in our sin. So what in the world is happening here? Why is God doing this? Once again, be careful how you define goodness. Goodness does not mean whatever is good for me and for whatever I want in this very moment of my life. Goodness goodness is not good in what I view as good or what my understanding views as good. Goodness refers to the attributes of God. Goodness refers to the total excellence and beauty of our God all at once. If you were to describe our God all at once, you would say that is goodness right there. His wrath is goodness. His judgment is goodness. He is good. That's the sum total. Matter of fact, as uh, Moses is praying to the Lord on, in chapter 33, making intercession for his people, the Lord makes these promises of continuing with his people, and Moses says, please, please, show me. Show me your excellence. Show me your glory. And the Lord promises to do so, and right before he declares this glorious name of his from chapter 34, 8 and following, he describes this all as my goodness. What is his goodness? 
His goodness is this. The Lord, the Lord, chapter 34, verse 8. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. But, and this is part of his goodness, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is God's goodness. That he is not trapped ever or cornered ever by our sin. He will judge sin perfectly, furiously, fully. And he will also offer gracious, abounding and steadfast love, salvation and forgiveness. All of these are together in his goodness. And I would say, to his people who have a heart to believe and obey and return and repent, his goodness leads to your assurance. Why does God not wipe them out? Why does God not wipe you out when you sin and when you fail? Why does God relent and remain? Well, I think the answer is found inside of the intercession of Moses. Turn back to Exodus 32, uh, verse 11. The Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have bought whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Notice, notice first, why does God relent? Because of his what? Power. His great power that brought his people out of Egypt is also capable to sanctify his people in their greatest sins. He is also able to bring them all the way home to their dwelling place. He relents and he remains because of his great power. He is a God who is able to do this. He is better than all other gods, all other hopes, anything else you could count on in this world. He is better. But Moses also goes on to praise him by saying in verse 12, Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Why does God relent? Why does God remain? Because his glory matters to him. Or you could say it in these terms, which sound crazy to even think about, but he has connected his eternal glory to your final salvation. And he is planning to get glory from your perseverance. His glory, that's why he relents and he remains. He does not want to smear his name among the nations, among the angels, among anyone who's watching. That is why we can have assurance of salvation because of his power and because of his glory as well. But Moses also goes on. Verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give. 
to your offspring, that they shall inherit it, it forever. He also relents and remains because of his eternal election. That's not dependent on his people at all, but simply the fact that he has chosen to redeem, sanctify, and glorify a people for his own praise. But also, there's, there's another reason God relents and remains. There's also another reason why God's presence is so vitally important to the peace and the joy of his people. Turn over to Exodus 33. Thirty-four, I mean. 34 verse 9. After the Lord declares this name, this glorious name that, that shows all of his goodness, Moses said this. If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. Why? Why is it so necessary for God to be with his people? For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Do you see what he's saying there? Another reason why the Lord must relent and remain is because of the wickedness, the sinfulness of his people. If the Lord God does not go with them, they will not make it. They need God in their midst. They need a tabernacle in the center of their camp and God dwelling among them. Otherwise, their hearts would fail. Otherwise, they would give up. Otherwise, they would be consumed. Notice, why does God remain? Because of his own glory. But also, and we see this hinted at, right? Because of the tabernacle. Because God has provided a way of satisfying his wrath in the sacrifices that must occur in this tabernacle. How does God remain among his people? Because this tabernacle is here. So the last few chapters, 15 chapters of Exodus, are critically important, right? How can this God who redeems us and requires us remain with us? If he doesn't remain with us, we are consumed, we are lost. He does that by a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. The middle shows you, the middle of these tabernacle preparations and buildings show you how that can be, how God can remain with you because of his glory. This is not just a God who redeems you from the penalty and bondage of sin. This is also a God who has determined to dwell among you by removing your sin and sanctifying you in your sin, and who has connected your sanctification to his own glory and his own name. And this is a God who remains because he has placed a substitutionary sacrifice at the very heart of the people. Why? To point them to the future sacrifice in Christ Jesus that would take all of the wrath. Remember what I was saying before about how every single sin will receive full judgment from God. That all happens either in your own personal judgment or in the judgment of God being satisfied at the cross. Every sin is either in Christ or laid on the people who commit it. That is the glory of the gospel. That is the critical importance of the tabernacle in God dwelling among his people. The reason why you have the assurance of this good God, great God, excellent God being with you to the end is because his total wrath has been consumed and satisfied in Christ Jesus. 
he has positioned his sacrifice in the midst of his people. And notice also we see the beauty of the gospel on display here as well. He has also positioned his own intercessor to speak back his will to him in prayer. All of this comes through the prayers of Moses. And this points us to the need we have of an intercessor on our part. That is Jesus himself at the right hand of God praying for us. And this all comes because of his free covenant promise, his eternal election. Glorious things, glorious things. And that brings assurance. This God who redeems and requires remains. What is the real problem with lack of assurance? Well, I think you've seen it. The perfectionist is only looking at himself. She's only looking at herself all the time, where I fall short, where I fall short, where I fall short. Whereas ultimate assurance is found in always looking to Christ, looking with faith to the cross in every sin that you have. The one who loves this world and the things of this world is focusing on and and placing their delight in the things of this world instead of their delight in and their focus on the person of Christ and following Him. The one who is guilty of conscience is focusing solely inward on their own heart, on their own feelings, instead of taking their feelings and their guilt to Christ on the cross. The person with unconfessed sin is more concerned about a, a, hidden, a hidden life that they have here and, and keeping secrets here on earth than they are concerned about the open scandal that their sin is in heaven. The, the person that is struggling with assurance of salvation is not following Christ, is not delighting in Christ, following Him, eager to obey Him out of love for Him. The person who struggles with assurance is someone who has a short memory and poor sight. Because the God who's revealed to us in the gospel, all throughout the Bible, is a God who should capture our heart and our affections and our obedience and our love. True fruit that gives us assurance is about focus direction and affection. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would bless this message in our in our hearts and our minds and help us to truly put aside sins that disrupt and trip us and focus on the cross of Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.